0: Later this week, a major new British Museum exhibition is opening, all about Stonehenge. So we thought this would be the perfect time to tackle Britain's most famous Stone Age monument on our Everything You Wanted to Know series. Our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to Mike Pitts, an archaeologist and the author of How to Build Stonehenge. Mike answered your questions and internet search queries on the subject. Thanks to everyone who submitted a question. And in fact, we had so many that we'll be splitting this episode into two parts and releasing the second part next Sunday.
2: Welcome to the latest in our Everything You Want to Know podcast series. Today we are talking about Stonehenge and Stonehenge is having a big year in 2022. There's going to be uh, a very big and important exhibition at the British Museum uh, called The World of Stonehenge, uh, which is going to be bringing together some interesting themes. And there's also going to be a uh, a fascinating new book, How to Build Stonehenge, which is written by uh, Mike Pitts, who is here with us as our expert Today, so Mike. Uh, hello, how are you doing?
3: Hi, Dave. I'm doing very well.
2: How are I'm you? Good, thanks. Good. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about Stonehenge. We have talked about archaeology once or twice over the years, you and I, but uh, I know Stonehenge is very <laughs> close to your heart. So,
3: yeah, it's it's always been there in the background, and quite often in the foreground in my work, um, right from the very beginning. Um, and you uh, you live not too far away from it, don't you? I do. It's about a half hour drive from where I'm sitting now to to Stonehenge. And as you rightly say, 2022 is going to be pretty much a Stonehenge year for us nerds.
2: And, and there's a lot going on in Stonehenge and a lot of interesting research. And we will get into that
3: as we go through.
2: But let's, let's uh, in, the, in the spirit of the format of this uh, podcast, we need to get into the basics and tackle some of the uh, questions that are most asked on the internet about
3: uh, Stonehenge. So the first thing, just tell us, what is Stonehenge? What is Stonehenge? It's a group of very large megaliths arranged very carefully surviving extremely well on the edge of Salisbury Plain in the centre of southern England the ones we see now were erected around about four and a half thousand years ago Um, it has a very long history preceding that and following the construction of the stones we now see and their collapse and I'm just going to pick up one word on there you said megalith that basically means big rock right that means big rock. And there are big rocks all over Britain. There are megaliths all over Britain. A big rock. A megalith is a big rock that somebody has looked at and said, hmm, I'm going to do something with this, and usually stood it on end. And sometimes they shape it, but often they don't. And one of the things that is utterly unique about Stonehenge is that not only are all these stones assembled into this one place and stood on end, but most of them are carved, are dressed. And many of them are actually jointed into each other. And this is unique in prehistoric Europe. And um you, you gave us a, a date of
2: four and a half thousand years ago. What period does that sit in in our in our archaeological terminology?
3: That's that's at the end of what we call the Neolithic. Um so if we think there've been people living continuously in Britain for ten, twelve thousand years since the end of the last ice age, for most of that time they were living of the wild, or what we call the wild, um, hunting and gathering. And farmers have appeared in this country about 6,000 years ago. And 4,500 years ago, farmers built Stonehenge. It's still largely a Stone Age society. Stone is the key technology. So one of the things, of course, when we think about Stonehenge and we look at Stonehenge is we have to remember that these guys were masters of the stone universe. You know, They knew what to do with stone in a way that we don't. Not long after it was built, or possibly even at the time, in ways that we, in small ways that we don't really see yet, um, metal is beginning to come into Britain. And then there are profound changes in society and culture as large numbers of migrants arrive with new technologies and beliefs, and physical cultures, new probably new clothes, new burial patterns, and so on, um, that we associate with the pottery called Beakers. And Stonehenge is still then an active place. Um, and then within a few generations, I think it starts to fall down. Possibly it's, bits of it are knocked down, are deliberately taken down. So at the time Stonehenge is built, it's at the end of centuries of generations of farming communities that seem to be trundling along quite happily on their own, um, at the beginning of an era of major cultural and social change.
2: So uh okay so uh, it's a it's a long lived monument with which covers some very interesting uh, events and periods that, that in in British prehistory um, but there's uh there's there's a couple of questions that uh, appear very often on the internet which we we will probably tackle throughout this conversation but let's let's give it a start for ten who built it and why was it built <laughs> Do
3: you say we got an hour for all these questions <laughs> I'm afraid so yeah we
2: have to be
3: brief <laughs> Okay, who, who? In a way, they're really simple because we can't answer either of them. But um, let, let's seriously: who built it? it? Obviously, the people living in Britain. These were uh, Neolithic people. Um, they had a long history behind them in this country of living, farming, building, um, changing, probably religious ideas moving around the country, they knew the landscape extremely well, um, and that means not just the soils and the coasts, but the rocks and the woodlands and the moors and so on. So they knew where to find material for whatever they needed, which in the case of Stonehenge, of course, included, included stone. Why anybody would build Stonehenge is such an obvious question, and it's been asked right from the very beginning for centuries, and we still don't know. The basic reason we don't know is that this was wildly prehistoric, millennia back into times before there were any written records. And so we can only guess. And in that sense, the question is one of the easiest to answer because we can't prove any answer wrong fundamentally, I think we can safely say that there would have been a mixture of reasons in the minds of people building Stonehenge. And indeed, at the time, I suspect there are a lot of people who didn't even know why it was being built, but were being made to take part. There will have been a mixture of religious, political and social reasons. And There's power behind that monument somewhere, whether it's communal or individual or political. Um, There's something that's bringing people together to draw on these huge resources that would have been required to create the final monument. The other thing we can say about why it was built, the reasons probably changed over time. Stonehenge, as a site attracting religious and political attention, was active for centuries. Things began there before 3000 BC, over 5,000 years ago. And for the first few centuries, one of the really distinctive features of the site, when there was already a circle of stones, was burial. And it was the largest, or became, by the time they stopped doing this, the largest cremation cemetery we know from this time in the British Isles. And hundreds of people were buried there. And so it became associated from the beginning with funerals, with death, with that passage in life. Um, And interestingly, when the really big stones are brought to the site, so the Stonehenge that we now see, burial by and large finished. So either burial and death is no longer a part of the meaning of Stonehenge or the earlier history as a ceremonial, as a funerary celebratory site, is being monumentalized for the future, is being celebrated, and burial is occurring somewhere else. So funerary ritual, life and death, uh, politics, religion, uh, I haven't mentioned the alignment on the sun, that's something that's built into the monument right from the very beginning. Um, It's aligned very clearly on the rising sun at midsummer, and in the opposite direction, the setting sun at midwinter, these things are all part of Stonehenge and have to be part of any explanation we try to come up with why it is there.
2: So um, you've dealt with one of my next questions, which is uh, to, t- to some extent, which what was there before the stone? So there was this, this some sort of funeral uh, complex of some sort. Um do we know, have we got any reason, any sense of understanding about why this place might have been chosen to, to become the monument that it did become?
3: It's a really good question because um, that's definitely part of, of the big question, why Stonehenge is exactly, why is it where it is? There have been a number of attempts to explain this over the years. In the 1960s, when astronomical ideas became very popular, Some people tried to explain the location by arguing that it was perfectly sighted for particular observations uh, in the sky. That doesn't really stand up. And if you take it literally, the perfect location for Stonehenge would be in the middle of the English Channel. Other reasons include the fact that in Wiltshire, there are a lot of very large natural stones. Um, They're not necessarily immediately in the area of Stonehenge, but they're within a day's walk. Um, And so the presence of those stones may have themselves been part of the inspiration for a monument of that type. Recently, there have been a couple of of geological suggestions. One is that the alignment on the rising Midsummer Sun was actually set in the landscape during the Ice Age, and that there are features in the chalk that were caused by periglacial action, which is the deep freezing of the ground um, in tundra conditions um, and then thawing in spring at the surface, which causes the chalk to break up and churn. And um, the suggestion is that there were lines created by this on the slope that runs down from Stonehenge towards the rising midsummer sun that became fixed in the landscape and were visible from an early age to the farmers who could... who saw the location then as one that had some kind of primordial relationship with the Midsummer Sun. Another suggestion, and this actually is mine, (laughs) is that there were a couple of really large natural stones on the site, and by complete coincidence, these two were aligned on that solstice axis, the Midsummer-Midwinter axis, and that those may have inspired an interest in the site long before Stonehenge was built. And then, of course, we have to remember that there are likely to be all sorts of factors that we can't see that are to do with the um, politics of the time between the location of different communities of political units, which, of course, for this time in prehistory are extremely difficult, if not impossible, to define. So, for example, there is a case for saying that places like Stonehenge are near the centre of political units, equally they could be actually on the fringes or between, on the boundaries between them. And it's difficult to argue either way, but these are going to be factors you know, that we need to take into account when we think about why Stonehenge is where it is um,
2: and you can charge down some pretty good rabbit holes when you start looking at those sort of things.
3: But I do, I do like that
2: idea of the of sort of the periglacial striations. We had Francis Pryor on the podcast a little while ago, and he he, was, he yeah. was talking about that. But if that was the if that was the case, then that would mean that the the monument had like a genuinely you know multi millennial history going back right to the end of the Ice Age, wouldn't
3: it? Uh, yeah. Potentially, indeed. The same would apply with my suggestion that there were two natural, large sarsens on the site that happened to be um, lying on the same alignment. But the fact that the alignment's there doesn't mean that people necessarily saw it, or if they did, that they interpreted it in any significant way. So we had to be careful about extending these things too far back into the past um, without actual evidence. But definitely... Um, the possibility is there that Stonehenge or the location was ritually, politically, religiously significant long before we first see any evidence for it.
2: And before we move on from this one, what about the uh, proximity of the site to waterways and indeed to springs? I know that's being talked about a bit. The waterways perhaps as a mechanism for moving things around. Um, Is there anything in, in in its watery location?
3: The landscape around stonehenge is is a curious one where it comes to availability of water. Uh, the rock is chalk, and water just rain just flows through it. And sometimes you get seasonal streams that appear, but most of the time the only place you're going to get water is by digging deep wells or going down into major valleys where there are permanent rivers. So Stonehenge is on a block of chalk that sits between two rivers. Uh, There's a lot of ancient activity contemporary with Stonehenge very close to the river to the east, the River Avon. And that river is clearly significant. If you follow that river south down to the south coast, then every so often you come across major complexes of religious and political monuments that are close to that river or a tributary of it. And if you go north, um, you reach Avebury, which is at the headwaters of the River Kennet, which flows east into the Thames. Along the Thames, there are a number of contemporary religious monuments and so on. So people are doing things beside these rivers. They're probably living by them because rivers obviously are good places to be, by because they're useful for transport and obviously you need water for all sorts of reasons for your stock and for for living and for industry. But there are also suggestions that rivers had themselves religious significance. And one idea is that for much of this time, we have very little evidence of what people were doing with the dead, and the idea could be the the suggestion is that people might have been rather than burying cremated remains, scattering them into these rivers.
2: Right, let's let's move on a bit and try and tackle some of our our, our listener questions. So, um, you've talked about this a bit before, but Julian Hall on Facebook wants to know: Were the stones really transported from North Wales, or were they sourced locally? And that's a bit of a complicated answer, as with all of these things. But um, what's uh, what's the answer to that?
3: Well, it's a sort of yes. If you just cut out the north, I mean, it's actually South South Wales. Many of the stones do come from South Wales, um, and many of them come locally, or more or less locally. We've got two very distinct types of rock at Stonehenge. um, To the general observer, geologists will get fussier, but the general observer, we've got two types. And we call, one, blue stones. And these are small stones, small megaliths. And they, by and large, all come from southwest Wales. The other, which are the big stones, and when we look at Stonehenge in most photographs, what we see are these big ones, especially if we see one of these atmospheric silhouettes against a a sunset or something, we see the really big stones, and these are all sarsen. And sarsen is a very distinctive rock that's found scattered across southern and eastern England, Um, and in North Wiltshire in particular is one of the biggest concentrations of these in Europe. and. That is a very, very distinctive stone in its own right. The blue stones comprise a whole bunch of different types of rock, almost all of them igneous, um, and come, that come from a number of different locations, mostly in Southwest Wales.
2: And, and for, our, um, for our overseas listeners,
3: um, Southwest Wales is a fairly long way from, uh, from Stonehenge, isn't it? It is. I mean, it, it's what's interesting about it, and is why there are still there's a kind of subculture of objection to this idea that people brought the stones from Wales, and actually they were transported by glaciers. Is is, it is so far, and it, it does require an acceptance that people did something that is really quite exceptional, even on a global scale um, for societies at this time we're looking it depends on how you measure it i mean if you measure in a straight line it sounds long enough i've actually um calculated quite precisely a journey from what we think is a known quarry in pembrokeshire in southwest wales to stonehenge as 220 miles that's 350 kilometers that's a long journey by any any stretch
2: particularly if you're trying to transport a heavy rock
3: well, indeed, yes. Although we have to remember, and it's very important to get this right, that the heavy rocks that were transported from Wales, um, in this case um, 220 miles, are the small ones at Stonehenge. And they're heavy, they're big, you know, you're not going to just bend over and pick one up. But with a fairly small team of people and a decent sledge, you can move these things without too much difficulty. You can even carry them. You can strap them into wooden frames. And with a large number of people, you can lift them through really awkward bits of landscape. It's challenging. It requires a commitment, especially the number involved. I mean, there are really a lot of these. And it's a long journey, but it's, it's not. It's technically quite straightforward.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: Protecting them with these Giant Sarsens might have been a recognition that these bluestones were associated with ancestors that reach back centuries beyond human memory, and that the stones themselves have become representatives of those ancestors, and the monument was built to honor them and protect them.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring Visit betterhelp.com/slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com/slash History Extra
2: So, what is the uh, academic orthodoxy, or indeed your view on how they they were moved? Is it is it the sledge idea that the one that's that's prevalent?
3: To be f- honest, I'm not sure there is an orthodoxy. I think there are, there are two basic approaches to these. One is the traditional idea, or what's become the traditional idea, is that the stones were moved from Pembrokeshire, from Southwest Wales, largely by sea. Um, they were carried over land to the shore, and then put on rafts and then rafted along the south coast of Wales, across the Bristol Channel, making landfill in what is now Somerset, and then carried over land or possibly rafted upriver for most of the journey to reach Stonehenge. The alternative that is now being much discussed is that the entire journey was actually done over land. And so instead of going south to the coast in Pembrokeshire and then onto a raft, you'd go eastwards, um, and then up into the Black Mountains, and then overland you go inland to avoid having to cross the River Severn and the Bristol Channel, and then come south over Salisbury Plain to reach Stonehenge. And
2: that, on that, on the land route, then that allows for the idea of it being some sort of performative exercise, i.e., passing through territories of different people and, and seeing it, uh,
3: seeing seeing the stones pass by. Exactly. I think, I think there are a number of advantages to the land route. May I say first of all that I think one of the reasons people have dismissed in the past the land route is that it just didn't seem practical. That it involved so much work, and it was much easier to go by and quicker to go by sea. Um, There's been a lot of interest recently in people who move large stones out in Asia, in particular um, in North. uh, in countries around the Indian Ocean. Um, and there, um, although many of these people are actually living near the sea, journeys are invariably favoured over land. And we, you can, we can watch people do this. And we can see that actually, it's not as impossible as we might imagine, um, both in engineering terms and in political terms or social terms, in, in the sense of actually trying to get people to take part. People cannot. Way to take part, and if anything, the issue tends to be having to control too large a crowd. You know, you have an excess of hands to move these stones. Um, and yes, the important point is, if you take a stone around the coast on a raft, there's only a few dozen people who can be involved. You might have a little family standing on the beach waving at this thing in the distance, you know, <laughs> but they're not really involved. If you carry a stone over land you go through villages, you go through farms and gardens um, and people are there and involved and you stay overnight, you you, you are treated as guests by communities as you pass through and over a journey of such distance it's very likely you're passing through a number of different local political communities. It's quite conceivable you're actually passing through people who speak different dialects. Um, So you're engaging with the world. And I think one of the big things about Stonehenge is that when we ask that question, going back to why it was built, the actual construction process is part of the answer. Um, It's something that would have involved huge numbers of people and put enormous pressure on resources. And the process of organising that is in itself an achievement, not just the monument, but the actual activity. And it's a massive thing that people would have seen and been impressed by and would have wanted to take part in, um, for one reason being that if you do take part, then you have given your neighbour or your resources in some way or another, and you set up a debt for somebody to repay, or you hope, to repay in future. And so you're building alliances, um, you're doing a lot of parting and celebrating the achievements of everything that's happening, um, and so many other things would have happened and taken place at the same time, inspired by what was going on. If you put a stone on a raft and go around the coast, you miss out on on, on all this socialising and political engagement. We've been talking about the, uh, the Blue Stone journey as being either by sea or by land. What I've actually done in my book is I I started with the principle that the most important thing with moving bluestones, if you you say we're going to move them over land, the most important thing is to avoid steep slopes upwards. And when you do that, you realise you can't actually go far north to avoid the Bristol Channel because that puts you in a position where you have to go up some very steep hills coming south And you can avoid that by crossing the Bristol Channel. So I think it's reasonable to suggest that most of the journey was over land, but we do know people had decent boats at this time. And they could have come down the River Usk on rafts or in canoes and quite easily crossed within less than a day, crossed the Bristol Channel, which actually shortens the journey and speeds it up. So we have a combination of of overland and a bit of bit of sea
2: yeah now i do a bit of sea kayaking and, and i wouldn't fancy trying to cross the bristol channel in a in a you know in a wooden log boat or in a uh in, in one of those um uh stitch boats that they had with the with the uh with the, with the currents that you get there but
3: no no they have they've got good boats they've got one of the things that they need um, with stonehenge is they need to make sledges. Now, with the bluestones, they could be little simple things, but the sarsens, the sheer weight of them, they need to be massive engineered structures. And the people who built those sledges would have been the people who built houses. And these were architects and engineers. We know from archaeological evidence they, they were constructing various times, very large timber monuments and, and houses and buildings. And these were engineers who understood uh, the technology of timber. And we have Bronze Age boats, which have to have a history behind them reaching back into the time when Stonehenge was built, that are highly engineered, that express an understanding of engineering principles that are very sophisticated. So these guys could build complex timber structures.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and those some of those Bronze Age boats are very impressive, um, very impressive craft. Um, now, look, now I'm going to I'm going to move us on um, to uh, a question from Dee Withers, which you've sort of alluded to a bit here. Basically, he asked quite a long question, but I'm going to paraphrase it. It, it. It's it's asking about how they organise the human power to 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 get the the job done, and obviously, as you, you've explained, this is a, a job that's done over. A very long period. But um, what does it tell us about the way society must have been organised for, for, for this project to have been even attempted?
3: The very existence of Stonehenge tells us that we're dealing with a, a very a complex, sophisticated society. Although, to be honest, I don't think we, we really should need Stonehenge to remind us that. And you know these that this is an agricultural society um it's been around for generations. it's living very successfully in the landscape. it's building all sorts of monuments um these are These are you know clever people. We need to be careful not to get confused when we talk about how long stonehenge uh took to be built because on the one hand, the site was active as a religious area for generations, for centuries, and megaliths were being brought to the site and moved around and so on, and things were changing on the other hand. Any individual monument probably was constructed in a relatively brief period. And that applies particularly to the last one, which is the one we now see, because the stones are engineered with each other. The design of the monument means that it has to have been built as a single uh, a single project. So if we go right back to the beginning, the very first blue stone circle, you've just got a ring of stones. Any one stone could arrive at any time and happily be stood up in its pit. Uh, so the blue stone circle, these stones from Wales, in theory, we could have had one megalith arrive every generation. I mean, that's unlikely, but in theory, that's possible. With the big Stonehenge, the real Stonehenge, um, you can't, that could, it couldn't have happened like that. Because you have to engineer it. So, for example, the sarsen circle, the big stone circle, supports a ring of lintels. This is like a tie beam in a timber, timber building. And these lintels are jointed into each other. You've got 30 of them, and they're also jointed into the uprights that support them underneath. Now you can't put that together over a generation. That needs to have been done, um, literally within a few months. And I think it's conceivable to imagine that that big Stonehenge was built over within five years. Now to organise that for us today, I think it's difficult to imagine. You know, w- without the kind of infrastructure that we have, but clearly it was done, and so the the organisation was there, and I think we need to bear in mind that it was already there. It wasn't created just for Stonehenge. People had been building monuments of one kind or another for generations. Stonehenge is surrounded in southern Britain by comparable structures made out of timber, and some of these are very large indeed. I mean, the biggest that Stanton drew in Somerset where there are a a number of concentric, perfect circles of timber oak posts, or the posts were there, the holes in the ground are now there, is vastly bigger than Stonehenge. What you need for Stonehenge is essentially a huge number of hands. That would itself have been a damper on how long you could take, you could give to build it. You know, somebody's got to feed these people to look after their their health and injuries Um, and meanwhile they are taken out of their communities back home Uh, many of these people we assume they must have Moved, been moved into the area to do this, local communities would not have been big enough. And so the presence of these people on the one hand in the local community is a huge pressure on resources. On the other hand, their absence from their home communities is also straining existence activities back home. So this needs to be done as quickly as possible in that sense. There are going to be plenty of factors that operate in the opposite direction, of course. I mean, people will want to rest and celebrate. And, and carry out rituals and ceremonies, there will be injuries, things will go wrong, but but it needs to be organised, there needs to be some kind of overall control. That doesn't necessarily mean we've got some kind of chief or king telling everybody what to do. It's perfectly possible for that type of organisation, for that type of activity to come together through communal effort um, and that's something that... Frankly, I think it's impossible to judge at the moment as to which of those extremes or where in between the organisation lay. But it's there. It, it achieved Stonehenge. It was doing something remarkable.
2: Would you be able to give us a, a super brief summation of the different stages of the construction of the site? So you've, you've talked about a couple of them now, but how it develops over over time.
3: The first well-dated event we've got at Stonehenge is the excavation of a perfectly circular ditch and bank and this occurs around about 3,000 BC, 5,000 years ago. Immediately inside that ring in the chalk there is a ring, a perfect circle of 56 small standing stones and these are all blue stones from southwest Wales. When that stone circle was built surprisingly is itself not dated Um, We might get there one day through future excavation, but at the moment we're working through a combination of guesswork and logic. And, And usually we assume that it's built at the same time as the ditch, so in other words, around about 3000 BC. However, they're also in that same area, so around what we would now call the site periphery, there are large numbers of cremation burials, shallow pits in the ground where cremated remains have been concealed, and many of these are actually in the pits holding the standing stones. And some of these have been radiocarbon dated, and they go back a century or two before the excavation of the ring ditch. So it's possible that the bluestone circle was actually the first feature on that low hill, which was later enclosed by the ditch and banks. So, but basically, somewhere at the beginning, we've got a perfect ring, uh, a chalk earthwork and a ring of stones. A few centuries later, those blue stones are removed and brought into the centre of the site and re-erected in a new arrangement. And this is the murkiest area in Stonehenge history. We know there are a couple of arcs, a sort of semicircles of pits in which there were two stones um, standing at either end of a long pit. So you've got a, a ring of, a, of paired stones. There's debate about whether, and this debate exists partly because only part of the monument's been excavated, about whether that ring ended up as a complete circle or whether it was in fact completed as an open ring and not a complete ring. And there are other standing stones in that area, but it's all quite confusing. The evidence is not good. That is later dismantled, and then the Stonehenge we see today is constructed um, around 2,500 BC, 4,500 years ago. So the site is completely cleared. The sarsens are brought in, the really big stones are brought in, dressed and erected, and then the blue stones are brought back in, and now they they are stood into arrangement that mirrors arrangement of the sarsens. So in the centre of the site, we have a horseshoe-shaped structure of five trilithons, we call them, each of which consists of three stones, two uprights, and a lintel. They're the biggest stones at Stonehenge, and these are sarsen. And immediately inside that is a horseshoe shape, a kind of U shape, of some of the finest blue stones. And then that lot of stones is surrounded by a perfect circle of sarsens, 30 uprights supporting a ring of 30 lintels, and immediately inside that is a not-quite-so-perfect, rather wobbly circle of all the other blue stones that were left, of which there were quite a few. The exact number we just don't know. We know how many sarsens there are, partly because it's such an engineered structure that when you've got stones missing, we know there must have been other ones there in particular places um the blue stones are less certain we need a lot more excavation for that but we're possibly talking about as many as 80 or 90 blue stones in these two arrangements
2: so various changes over a reasonably long period of time is is it uh, one of the things that fascinates me is, is is it ridiculous to think that there is an overarching long term plan to to for this for this for the monument to change in the way that it does
3: i don't think there could have been the, the time we're talking about is too long. So, I mean, in 3000 BC, I really do not think people are going to have thought, said to themselves, just think, lad, you know, 500 years' time, we're going to build the real Stonehenge. I just don't think that's how it would have been. And I think one of the re- the reasons we can see actually in the ground to support that is that the big Stonehenge, the, the engineered monument, um, does appear to be a representation in stone of structures that were being built at that time in oak on quite a large scale and much more commonly. And those structures don't really appear either until the big Stonehenge appears. And there, is, there are other changes in society going on in the background as well. So when the original Blue Stone Circle is built, we're in what we call the Middle Neolithic. And we have distinctive artifacts, distinctive pottery, distinctive stone tools, and distinctive ways of farming at that time, when the big stone hinges built, were in the late Neolithic or beginning of the Copper Age. And then we have quite different artifacts, different pottery styles, different stone tools. And there are suggestions, and this is really interesting, that at that time people were not farming so much that they weren't growing cereals, but they were relying more on wild plant foods. So, and there are other changes, you know. So I think it's it's like, if you look at a cathedral today, um, some of the earliest cathedrals are extremely old. they are centuries, generations old, and they are still in many ways functioning as they were designed. I don't think Stonehenge is like that. I think during the time that Stonehenge remained active as a religious and political site, the changes within society across Europe were so fundamental that we could expect changes occurring about the thinking of the monument as well. And I think one of the interesting ways to look at this is to think that possibly the big Stonehenge, the engineered Sarsen monument we see today, was in a sense a closure bringing the bluestones into the middle, protecting them with these giant sarsens, might have been a recognition that these bluestones were associated with ancestors that reach back centuries beyond human memory, and that the stones themselves have become representatives of those ancestors, and the monument was built to honour them and protect them. And so it's looking backwards in that sense, but it's looking forward because it's creating a monument that is designed to preserve these memories and these monumentalizations for generations. And that's something one can imagine happening at a time when there are communities within communities or individuals who need to make an impression on society, who need to say, we are the guardians of ancestry, we are looking after the future,
2: that's a, that's a pretty decent theory. That 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 one uh, that one goes for me. Now, here's here's a good question, which is possibly tongue in cheek from Whistler Goblin on Instagram, who wants to know where's the roof gone. So, w- w- is there any evidence for any any idea at all of ever having anything, uh, any structure
3: on top of what we see now? To be fair, there's no evidence that there never was a roof. <laughs> um, I but I I really don't think we need need to posit it. I mean, there's no, there's nothing there to make you think there would have been a roof and why would you roof it and it just uh, no i it's such a huge i mean the, the the circle is such a huge span and it's it's it it is open to the sky and it feels right it's aligned on the sun and you need to see that sun you don't want to put a roof on so you can't see it um and the, at the solstice defence at midsummer and i think particularly at midwinter when you, if you're lucky enough to see the sun, and of course often in winter you don't, but when you do, uh, today the sun will set but, but down behind the monument, originally between two the most impressive megaliths on the site, great glowing red orb, painting the sky red, and the whole monument. Takes part in that experience. Um, It's all arranged around that that alignment. And if you put a roof on it, you'd completely lose that.
0: That was Mike Pitts. His book, How to Build Stonehenge, is published now by Thames and Hudson. Be sure to join us again next Sunday for part two of this episode, where Mike will join us once again to tell us more about the prehistoric site. The British Museum exhibition, The World of Stonehenge, will be opening on the 17th of February. And you can also find a feature by Mike on the building of Stonehenge in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which also goes on sale on the 17th of February. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. us on the History Extra website this week as we dig into the history and mystery of Stonehenge in our special Stonehenge-themed week. With a 30-day free trial to our digital subscription, you can access exciting Q&As featuring Stonehenge experts, quizzes, opinion articles and more. For a full week of history that you certainly won't want to miss, visit historyextra.com forward slash join. That's historyextra.com forward slash join for more information.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. We came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio
3: 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.